Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Sacred Space, which is coming to you from our Come and See Inspirations studio here in Arda County Limerick. My name is Lorraine Buckley, and I'm sounding very joyful because today is Gaudete Sunday. Good morning, John. Good morning, Lorraine. How are you? I'm very well. Are you joyful this morning, I am. I am. I'm just going to sit back here and watching yourself and shine and and do all the work. I'll press a few buttons (laughs) and I'll enjoy it all. And do we believe that, listeners? No. I'm joined in studio also this morning by John's better half, dare I say, Keely. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Lorraine and Shane and John. (laughs) And, of course, we have to bring our resident scholar on the programme today, Scripture and uh, Saints and All Things Theological. Good morning, Shane. Shane's going to kill me, by the way. (laughs) Good morning, Lorraine. Good morning, listeners. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, what are they looking for? Today is Gaudete Sunday. Yes, Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. Gaudete coming from Rejoice, Rejoice, which is the intro to the Mass for the third Sunday of Advent. Of course, which mirrors Latare Sunday, which is the fifth Sunday, fourth, fifth Sunday of Lent as well. So in some churches this morning, you might actually see Father having a dose of the vapours dressed in a rose vestment, is I think is what it's called. I think most men would call it pink. It's not pink. It's definitely rose. Definitely rose this Yeah, morning. most fellas would just call it pink. And of course, they light the rose candle as well of this course, morning. Of course, the Advent yes. And of course, uh, for those of you who cannot get out to Mass this morning, uh, you are our very special listeners, our housebound, our lonely. Maybe you're struggling with some health problems today. We thank you for joining us for another hour here on Sacred Space, in which we hope to bring you the good news and a little bit of music and reflection. Sacred Space is also broadcast on West Limerick 102 FM, of course, as is going out now at 10 a.m. and 11 p.m. each Sunday. And a podcast of this and all our previous programs are available on our blog, sacredspace102.blogspot.com. You can also search for us on iTunes by searching for Come and See Inspirations. You can contact the programme, of course, by emailing john at sacredspace102 at gmail.com or by texting 87 And we're kind of half thinking of running a little text competition here on the programme because we haven't much traffic by text so far. So we might offer a little prize in the new year for people who text in to us. So Shane. To you first this morning, what saints are you bringing to our attention this week? Well, now, it's an, it's a delicate one when you're talking about the coming week, of course, because, of course, today is the uh, 16th of December. So first things first up in terms of liturgical odds and ends covering on this week's programme. So for those praying the Psalter, we're on week three. But, of course, because we're on to the dates the 17th to the 24th of December, the texts are what are called proper. What does that mean in English? And for those of you that don't pray the Psalter, it means they're prescribed. There's set text for every day. Uh, because from the 17th to the 24th of December, we have special antiphons and psalms that are picked in the preparation coming up to Christmas. And in particular, of course, we're talking about evening prayer or vespers, where the antiphon before the Magnificat, which is prayed every evening, is, of course, the great O's, the great O antiphons, um, <clears throat> which are a traditional, uh, a great tradition in the church. Uh, it's great if you could, you know, if you could ever go to somewhere to hear the O's being sung. And for most people in their ordinary pew, where do you come across?
across the O antiphons. You're actually coming across in the hymn O Come O Come Emmanuel because each verse of the O Come O Come Emmanuel equals one of the great O antiphons. But in terms of the Saints of the Week, <clears throat> so the 17th is an unusual one. It is the feast day of St. Lazarus of Bethany. Now, Lazarus, as otherwise known as Lazarus of the Four Days or Lazarus the, Re- the Resurrected, obviously enough, the brother of Mary and Martha at Bethany, man whom Jesus raised from the dead. Um, we don't know really what happened to him after he was raised from the dead. I'm always curious what the conversation was when he came out. And then I'm kind of, I was always curious, well, what happened when he died the second time? Mm. But he's obviously not still around, <laughs> you know. Tradition says he became a missionary to Gaul and was the first bishop of Marseille, Marseille even. But the problem is that's also tied up with the fact that Mary, Mar- Mary Magdalene is supposed to have gone to, to France as well. But the French seem to like to claim a lot of those early saints. But they also said Joseph Arimathea went to France as well. So I was thinking, by God, there must have been an awful lot of traffic to France. But anyway, that's what tradition says and we move along. So the 18th of December, <coughs> excuse me, is the feast day of St. Flannan as per the Irish calendar. 7th century saint and he's the son of the king of Thomond and he entered Malula's monastery I think that's how you pronounce the man's name at Killaloo and he became abbot there and he's remembered as a great preacher now if I'm not mistaken isn't the school in Killaloo that's named after St. Flannan I think it is, yeah. Now, then on the 19th, now, for those, this comes with the breakfast warning, as I am now required to give by my editor-in-chief. So, the breakfast warning is ahead of this one, the 19th of December. It is the feast day of Blessed William of Finoli. Now, William of Finoli was a hermit in the Torre Mondovi region, in um, which is, I think, is in Lombardy in Italy. He was a Cartesian lay brother, so that means he was part of the, Cart- the charter house of the Cartusians, but he didn't actually take full vows, and he just managed external affairs. So he kind of did the, he was a gopher. And he was very unlearned in theology and philosophy and all the rest of it, uh, but in the spiritual life and good works, he was considered a saint even in his own lifetime. Now, this is where the breakfast warning comes in. One day, coming in from the fields, William was attacked by thieves, according to the legend, and he defended himself by tearing the leg off his donkey and using it as a club to drive off the attackers. Afterwards, he reattached the leg and himself and the donkey trundled on home. So that is uh, that is uh, Blessed William of uh, Finoli, whose feast day we celebrate on the 19th of so December. So if there's any complaints from Peter out there, we would like you to direct them straight to Shane Ambrose. I'm just recounting the story. I didn't say I agreed <laughs> with what the man did. Finally, then, <coughs> sorry, then on the 20th of December, we have the feast day of St. Fac. Fachnan, I think is how you pronounce the man's name. It's from the Irish calendar as well. Very little known about him, associated with Kilfenora, and that he founded a church there around the 6th century. And, of course, he's now venerated as the patron of the Diocese of Kilfenora. Now, it's interesting, the Ordo makes a mistake. It describes the Diocese of Kilfenora as now being part of Galway, which is actually technically incorrect. The Diocese of Kilfenora is sede vacante. It doesn't have a bishop, so technically the bishop is the, is the Pope, uh, which they were very keen to bring up when the Pope was here, actually, in August. <laughs> and the, the, bishop, uh, the bishop of Galway is the apostolic administrator of the Diocese of Kilfenora. But anyway, that's just a minor thing liturgically on the day which is the 20th of December. Finally then the shortest day of the year, the 21st of December, <coughs> Friday and it is the feast day of St. Peter Canisius, priest and doctor of the church. He was a Jesuit, well, we can't hold that against him, d- born between 15, or lived between 1521 and 1597, was Dutch and he intended to become a lawyer but joined the Jesuits. Now, there's a journey you'd like to ask questions about. Through courtesy and learning, he promoted the Catholic revival after the Council of Trent, and he's regarded as the second apostle to Germany. 
And his greatest work was a catechism of 211 questions and answers, which was published in 1555. And according to the screen that's on here in front of me, it was republished about 200 times. God bless him. He was a busy man. Right, moving on. <clears throat> the 22nd of December, the Saturday, is the Feast of St. Aben of New Ross. And all we know about him is they founded the city of New, the town of New Ross in County Wexford. So that's what we have in terms of our saints for the week. And, of course, the 23rd is next Sunday, which will be the fourth Sunday of Advent. Right, John, any notices? Yeah, just one. <laughs> I, I tell you, I don't know where they get some more from. <laughs> Thanks for that, Shane, again. Uh, yeah, just just one important one. Um, just revised paper, Christmas Confessions in Newcastle West uh, Church. The 22nd, next Saturday, there will be an opportunity to go to confession as part of your spiritual preparation for Christmas in Newcastle West Church between 10.30am and 3.30pm. That's 10.30am, 3.30pm. And Saturday, twenty second of um, that's next Saturday, December. There'll be a number of different priests from surrounding parishes available. But please consider taking time out in the midst of all the, your other preparations to receive the lovely sacrament of God's mercy. Just a reminder to people as well: we the series Advent at the Abbey, t- tuning into real time, being hosted by Glenstall Abbey, is ongoing. <clears throat> so the third Sunday is coming up, which is this Sunday. So just uh, the the talk is at four thirty p.m. in the monastery li- library, but this Sunday they also have the school carol service which is at 3.30pm in the Abbey Church and for those that have it would be interested but can't make it to Glenstall on any of the Sundays if you go to www.glenstall.org org, they are posting links to recordings of those talks as well so the talk this Sunday is <clears throat> Divine Hospitality Offered and Received a reflection on Luke 1 39-45 which is the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary to her, sister, to her cousin Elizabeth and it is being given by uh Podrick McIntyre, who is a member of the community in Glenstall. So that's 4.30 at p.m. in the Monastery Library. I was there myself for the last two weeks. Unfortunately, I won't be able to go today. And it was very good. Last week, we had Jessie Rogers, and she was excellent. Jessie is always fantastic, Mm. I have to say. Any opportunity you get to hear her uh, speak at is one well worth attending or catching up on by podcast. And of course, at this part of our programme, we like to slow down to God's time for a moment. And I'm going to ask Anne to introduce and to lead us in our spiritual communion prayer. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I now cannot receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Amen. And thank you very much, Anne, for that. So now it's time to go for our first bit of music. And this morning we thought we'd play another version of O Come, Come, Emmanuel. And this is by the Piano Boys. So let's say this. Thank you. 
Sacred Space. And welcome back to the second part of Sacred Space on West Limerick 102. My name is Shane Ambers and I'm here with uh, John Keeley this morning. And as John said at the top of the programme, Sacred Space is on the road this morning because we went to Limerick to the new diocesan uh, office to have a chat this morning with our guest, who of course is Bishop uh, Brendan Leahy. Good morning, Bishop Brendan. Good morning to Shane. And welcome back again. It's a while since we managed to get you into Sacred Space. Well, I'm delighted to be here. That's the important thing. Excellent, excellent. Now, as listeners uh, will remember, from time to time, we asked Bishop Brendan to come on and to talk to us about how things are in the state of the diocese. And, of course, this year in particular, Bishop Brendan's been clocking up the uh, the media miles because, of course, he's launched a new pastoral, which is Moving Forward Together, Pastoral Units and Team Ministry. So we wanted to talk to him about this morning and ask him a couple of questions. Uh, in relation to it. So, Bishop, Lee, uh, Bishop Brindon, this is a big change for the diocese. Someone said to me the other day, it's probably the biggest tr- change structurally since the restoration of the hierarchy. I thought that was a big, big claim to fame, but I thought it was an interesting <laughs> one. I think it would be probably too big a claim to fame, but it is an important step, a very mm. important step. What we've decided now, after many years of thinking about this, we had a synod, of course, in 2016, and out of that came our pastoral plan, where we said we would move in the direction of pastoral ministry, We've had to look and say, well, okay, looking at things going forward, how should we shape the diocese? What parishes are linked together? And we've tried our best to kind of come up with parishes that are linked uh, geographically primarily, and then I suppose in terms of ministry and priesthood mm-hmm. to try and see how that can be arranged uh, in a way that will work going forward. And so what we have is we have what are called the establishment of pastoral units, where we have basically is it clustered kind of more formally parishes together. That's right. We have 16 Units, with two of them being subunits, but basically these are parishes, three, four, five, six, whatever it is, parishes coming together, and um, they will be now cooperating, collaborating, getting to know each other, working together, and maybe doing joint projects together. That's the idea. And then you'll have the two or three priests in that whole, let's say, area serving those parishes. So I, I, you, we were listen, I was listening to your interview with Joe Nash on Limerick 95 during the week, and I loved the idea you said it was almost going back to the past to get to the future, where parishes, before individual parishes could have had a team of priests, like the parish priests and a couple of curates yeah. helping in an individual parish. But in this situation, we're going back to a group of priests service, serving a group of parishes. That's right. I mean, the, in other words, the idea is to go back to the idea that there, a priest isn't on his own in a parish, mm. that he's together. Now, it isn't that we're going back to the setup of a priest and curates, 
all of the priests here are co-parish priests, but they're working together as a team. And I suppose that's one of the big things that has been emphasized in the Catholic Church in recent years, the notion of working together. We use the the technical term of working together in communion with one another. Mm. And that's a big, I think, feature of what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us today. In some ways, it's a big change because I suppose parish priests, to a degree, would have been used to being, if you like the expression, lone rangers or lone wolves. You know, the bishop is the king in his own diocese, the parish priest was the king in his own parish. It's a big change for them. It is a change, but like, true, the bishops, for instance, in the region here in Munster, we now meet much more. We used to meet once a year. We now meet five or six times a year. Okay. The bishops' meetings, we meet four times a year. We have a retreat together for a week together as bishops. So as bishops, we are certainly trying to work much more as a team together. Mm. And I think right throughout the church, you'll find that happening. It is a change, yes, but I think priests are up to it. I admit it's not always easy for the priests, but it is a new moment, and they recognize we need to do something. Mm. But I suppose for, for lay people on the ground, I suppose, trying to get their heads around it I suppose a couple of things might come to mind I suppose the first question and it's it's very much tied up I suppose with our identity of ourselves is are you suppressing parishes no that's not happening each parish remains it has its identity but, you know, I like to take an example from West Kerry, where my parents uh, are from and where I, 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 I suppose in many ways grew up partly. as I grew up in Dublin, but we spent a lot of time in West Kerry. If you go to West Kerry, technically there's only one parish, Ballyferreter, but everybody knew their local parish where they grew up. Mm. We had the Dunquin Parish, we had the Martin Parish, we had the Moor, Parish of Moore Parish. Uh, you know, there was Kilquade Parish. There was all the old historical parishes. They still had their identity. Mm. In our case, we're not suppressing anything. The parish still actually exists. And I think identity is a question of the mind and of history and of a lot of factors which go together. Mm. Whether or not a parish is suppressed is almost secondary. Mm. Okay. So it's, it's, it's an important thing, I suppose, to, for people to, if you like, it's an opportunity for parishes and for parishioners to kind of say, right, you know, this is our opportunity to say, who are we as a people? That's right. Okay. And the big thing today is, you know, very often I, I saw a nice uh, phrase the other day, for young people, this was about young people. The question isn't so much in life, who am I, mm. but who am I for? That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And I think it's true for a parish. If a parish ends up just saying, who am I, and they turn in on themselves, mm. they're not really themselves. A parish exists for. And what we're trying to say is that they're not isolated. They're, they exist with others, mm. for others. Mm. And together we're working for the whole church for mission. Mm. Now, just, just thinking about that, where you have a group of priests working together and... You know, there isn't necessarily uh, a parish priest in each parish. I suppose for older listeners, maybe one of the questions might come to mind is, right, it's late at night and someone is sick and we need to call for a parish priest to come to, for, for example, administer the last rites. Who do we call? Yeah, that arrangement will be worked out locally by all mm. the pastoral units. The priests in the local area will so, will sort that out. It'll be available to people as mm. to who's on duty and what days. That, mm-hmm. that that system will still apply. The local priests will solve that. The reality is, of course, that unfortunately now most people ring straight for the ambulance mm. and they're brought straight into the, the hospital, hospital where we have two priests working as chaplains, of course, in mm-hmm. the hospital. Of course, of course. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a big change, in, I suppose, in terms of the relationship almost between parish priest and parishioners. I suppose if you think about it, a lot of people, I suppose, when they're getting married, you go for your nuptial inquiry. You have to get, as they say, you have to get your papers. And it, and part of that system, from a church's perspective, not the civil side of it now, but from the church's perspective, relies on a parish priest knowing his parishioners. Is that going to be feasible, do you think, in the new system? Look, we're moving into new times. We've less mm. people coming to church. We've less people getting married. Mm. So, in other words, the amount of people to be known is less. 
I can't deny that it is a challenge for priests, but the fact of the matter is we have less priests, and mm. that's just the reality. We have 10 parishes at the moment without a resident priest. But my point is, once we, the system settles down, I think after two or three years, you know, the priests will be known by the people, and the people will know th- these are our priests, mm. you know. And in terms of the system, I suppose it, sta- it, it kick-started the first Sunday of Advent, so that was the 2nd of December this year. I suppose, what are the next steps, I suppose, that we're, you know, we're going to start to see? Because the first weekend, priests were moving around, what was the expression? Sharing the altars, I think was the expression. Uh, but I suppose, what are the next steps involved? What will people start to see happening? Well, now we'll, we'll have to start building on it. For instance, we wanted to have one pastoral unit for the whole three or four parishes, that that'll have to be created. We have to get involved with the training, for instance, of the priests themselves. What, how do they work together? What way, what way, what are the questions that are being thrown up by this new arrangement? How do we sort them out? And they were going to have to do work together in the new year about that. We're also going to have to look much more creatively at the role of lay people and how lay people can be exercising um, a role, a ministry in the parish, such as looking after, for instance, uh, Take, for instance, the removal of the remains to a church that they might say the prayers in the church, mm-hmm. or they might involve, be involved in a baptismal team, a central baptismal team for the whole pastoral unit. The baptisms might still take place, of course, in the parish, but there'd be one central baptismal team. Or there might be, in the future, people who will be involved in the training children for the sacraments, helping out in the, you know, the schools do the sacraments, of course, but you might have people in the parish more directly involved as well, helping them. So that training of lay people as what we call catechists or pastoral ministry, that's going to have to start clicking in and we're going to have to find ways of doing that. Now, we have been discussing this with other dioceses to see can we come up with a common formula for all of us. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you've raised, you raised a couple of points there, I suppose. One of the ones, but one of the main things you, you talked about was training. And I suppose the question I suppose some people would ask is, how well is the diocese resourced to be able to do that, given currently, I, is there anyone working at the diocesan office for a pastoral worker? Because I think there's a couple of vacancies. Well, look, for a start, we're all trying to work together to try and see, can we reach on the pastoral plan? So Mm. we have somebody directly employed in um, bringing forward the pastoral plan. So she's involved in that. After that, we have to rely on a lot of volunteer goodwill out in parishes. Uh, We have Father Eamon Fitzgibbon, who's uh, the head of the pastoral institute in ireland which is in turles based in turles but he is one of our own priests so he's working very closely on with me on devising a training program for catechists going forward mm. and in terms of um just the ongoing you mentioned about the pastoral councils there i suppose some people said for the pastoral councils point of view i remember a couple of years ago each parish was required to have one so now what happens to those in terms of their coordination within the unit? Yes, those basically we're going to have one main pastoral council for the unit because what we've seen is parishes sometimes find it hard to field a good team, as it were. They have a few people interested or willing to help out, but maybe they find it hard to get a full, you know, fully fledged up fledged kind of pastoral council in a parish mm. so we're con- trying to say is let's have one good pastoral council in the unit and then there can be groups in parishes you can call them pastoral groups leadership groups mission groups working groups whatever you want mm. that that group will be as it were uh, the people on the ground who, who bring things forward in the local parish and just in terms of the going back to the idea of the parish identity i suppose one of the questions i suppose many people will have how does it work from a finance point of view? Yes, at the moment, all the parishes remain with their finances. Okay. That, that remains juridically the case. That's the case, and it's not going to change. No. I suppose with this kind of realignment, I suppose another question people might be asking is, well, if 
we are going to have less clergy. So do we need to reevaluate the assets that we hold across the diocese and where, if they're sold or disposed of, where does that go? Well, these are all questions which we will have to be looking at as we go forward, mm. absolutely. These are questions we're going to have to look at together. For instance, there are houses now becoming available where we no longer have priests. At the same time, we have an increasing number of retired priests, so mm. we have to kind of look into their accommodation. How do we provide for their accommodation? So these are questions which we have to look at together going forward. And I suppose one of the things that comes out of it is, while we have a great turning and rediscovery of the the role of the laity in the church which which is which is feeding into this whole idea of the pastoral units i suppose one of the questions people are going to say is well we still need our priests at the end of the day as a church we still need eucharist and you know which is the source and summit of the faith so i suppose the question to you bishop would be well what's our situation in terms of vocations for the diocese do we have seminarians well we have two seminarians at the moment but that's absolutely not sufficient so mm. we really do have to really work and pray that uh, we're going to have to do that to work and pray that we get more seminarians mm. absolutely so we try now for instance to have a prayer of the faithful at all, at all masses somewhere in, on Sundays where there's a prayer for vocations in some way that's that's a policy throughout the diocese mm-hmm. then also uh, I'm hoping shortly to set up a group for young people young adults kind of thinking about the future where you know what am I for that going back to that mm-hmm. question who am I for mm-hmm. that kind of a group that might look at future directions for their own life to try and encourage people to reflect on what is my calling in life and hopefully that might trigger a few people into thinking about the vocation to priesthood in our diocese. Mm. At the moment, um, where are our seminarians training? Is it Rome or is it in Minnesota? Our two seminarians at the moment are trained in Rome. Which makes sense, I suppose, because we have a man on the ground there in terms of uh, Father Paul Finerte. Yeah, he's the vice rector of the Irish College mm-hmm. in Rome, so yes, that's true too. But would you have a concern for seminarians that train in Rome that they may become, I suppose the expression local people might say it around in West Limerick would be, they're a bit too Roman if, you know, in terms of their training in that regard. In terms of how does that gel with their reality that they're going to face when they come back to minister in the diocese. Yes, well, I mean, I have a belief myself, Rome or otherwise, that nobody should spend all their seven years in the same seminary. And that would be true for the two lads as well. Okay. Uh, they won't spend all their seven years in Rome. Okay, that's right. Do you as bishop, do you have confidence in Maynooth? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Unfortunately, we have very few students there now. Mm-hmm. But I suppose looking at Maynooth from the point of view of the National Church, just for a moment... Do we think maybe it's time that we need to reconsider the model of seminary formation in its entirety? Is it providing us with, you know, okay, there's the issue of, of men going forward to for discernment, for, for vocation with the seminary, but the seminary training that they're getting itself, is it sufficient for their human, personal, spiritual, theological, psychological needs as priests for the 21st century? Well, yes, a, a new document, what's called a ratio, was um, produced last year for the whole church, which invites all of us to look again at what is our formation program for mm-hmm. seminarians, what should we be doing, and so in Ireland we have to now come up with our one as well, nationally for Ireland. Mm. And I think that provides us with an opportunity to address the very questions you're looking at. Mm. How today, what's the best way today to form future priests going forward for the needs of tomorrow? Well, mm. they're already the needs of today, but certainly the, the needs, needs of, of tomorrow. tomorrow. We need to be starting now looking at how we're forming priests. So that question is valid. So potentially, could we be looking at maybe the closure of the old Minutas, as we'd call it, if it's a new model was put forward? 
Yeah, I think at the moment we're not going to say it's this or that. Mm. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we'll have to sit down and reflect a lot on it mm-hmm. and then see what's the best that can be done in any particular situation because naturally students are going to have to study a bit of theology and mm-hmm. that's going to be an important feature for their, of their formation. We don't have that many places in Ireland teaching theology. So no, unfortunately, and a lot of them have closed. Mm. Mm. So, and to, just for, not just for seminarians, but for lay people Indeed. as well, it's, it's a challenge to find yeah. somewhere to, to yeah. be. Now we're very fortunate here in Limerick. We have uh, Mary Immaculate College, which mm. has a good theology department. And so that's that's a that's a feather in our cap here in Limerick. Mm-hmm. In terms of the the pastoral units, and coming back to the pastoral units, one of the areas you mentioned there was we will probably get to a stage where certain things that are done by priests at the moment, and you gave the example of the reception of remains at a church, could eventually be done by a lay person. And uh, in other interviews that you've done, you've spoken about the need for this to be discerned by the diocese and by the people and by the community as to who and how this is going to be done. At the moment, across the diocese, we are implementing or not playing around with, but are using, I should say, beg your pardon, uh, the liturgy of the words for lay, led by lay people on an experimental basis. Um, to date, what is your impression of it? Yeah, well, I, I'm hearing people say that it takes place maybe one day a week in some of the parishes and mm. lay people are leading those moments of prayer. Mm. I, I've heard reasonably positive uh, impressions about it. There is a question which some are asking whether or not there should be distribution at those weekday liturgies. Distribution of Holy Communion. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what's your own take on it? Was as Bishop, what you know, what 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 is what is? If I could put it this way, uh, sometimes things vary from parish to parish. As it stands at the moment, as Bishop, what is your view on the policy of distribution of communion at the weekday services? Yeah, my own view is this, that, well, for a start, we have to look at the whole context of the church and its tradition. I, number one, respect the fact that the very people who go to daily Mass are people who have an enormous love for the Eucharist. So this is a very delicate topic because they're the very ones who have a huge love for the Eucharist. Mm. And I can see their desire as a devotion as well to receive the Eucharist every day. And that I appreciate completely. Many saints of that line recommended that and absolutely, I don't want to take from that. Nevertheless, there is also the fact that we know that there is always a risk, and this has happened in the church in the past, that the Eucharist gets reduced to a thing Mm. that you distribute. Mm. And that would be damaging for the Eucharist, because the Eucharist ultimately is to always recall the celebration of the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary, and that it's a community that does that in the person of the priest, of course, but the priest in persona Christi offers the sacrifice of the Mass, community participates in it, and in that context, the Eucharist is distributed. If you start splitting all that and you start giving out communion, it can lead to dangerous directions. I'll give you an example. When I was very small, we used to go to Mass during Lent and our, one of the local churches, if you were lucky enough to arrive two or three minutes before Mass, it was fantastic because the priest was distributing communion. You received communion and you were delighted because it meant you could leave the Mass at communion time and go home. Mm. Yeah, it was okay. I can understand it. We were all delighted to be able to go home early. Mm. But looking back on it, it was kind of strange. Mm. And my fear is that we just would be, we just need to be careful. It isn't in the tradition. What we have in the tradition of the church is communion is brought to the sick as an expression of the Sunday assembly taking in those who are sick. Mm. So we have that tradition. But if you go through it, we don't really have the tradition of communion just being distributed separately. Mm. I suppose one other thing I would say to you is, you know, what some people, some reaction to the the liturgies of the word um, would have been, sure, if I wanted to say prayers, I could stay at home. 
You yeah, know, there's, there, there's, no, yeah, there's, that's the point. I mean, I think that's the point. We're yeah. very careful, of course, that from the very beginning, the church has always, always recognized the value of two or three Christians coming together in the name of Jesus, that that is a worshipping community. Mm. So that one of the things that we have in the church, which the Second Vatican Council has tr- tried to revamp, but maybe not so successfully, is what we call the, the, pr- the prayers of the church. That is all the prayers, morning prayer, evening prayer, office of readings, etc., that that we often think priests and nuns say, but in fact, they're prayers of the church and they're prayers of people coming together, praying together. Mm. And I think that's something that we have to acknowledge that, you know, we'd be careful the culture of individualism doesn't enter into our spiritual mm. life. And of course, the thing about it is that these whole, uh, if you like, these liturgies of the world, they're there to assist in, in parishes, although I suppose the uptake depends very much on the on the requirement from the relevant parish priest. Hopefully with the pastoral units, it'll be a bit more common. And once it becomes more common, people become more used to it. Then it'll, you know, it creates a, creates a degree of acceptance. I know recently you had a meeting in West Limerick in the Desmond Complex in Newcastle West. And I know that a lot of people were throwing a lot of questions at you. And one of them was a question which I myself have a view on. And it was the question in relation to bringing in priests from abroad. Now, my own take on it is, and this is coming from experience of working three years in central Uganda in a diocese where requests were coming from foreign dioceses uh, for priests to be released to, to assist. And it brought an awful lot of harm to the diocese itself because it's the local diocese that's funding their training. And then there is a, there is a need in African and, or Indian dioceses for their own priests. Um, but your, your, own, your own take on whether or not we should have foreign priests in Limerick? Well, we looked at this at the Synod, and the general decision at the Synod was where we can sometimes help priests. For instance, they want to come and study or they want to improve their English or have a break for a few years. Yes, we can be grateful that we can have the service of those priests for two or three years or whatever. So, yes, we might have some priests coming for a limited amount of time, but certainly we were agreed at the Synod that we wouldn't have a general policy of taking in loads of priests for a long-term uh, project. Uh, and some of the reasons, I think, are what you've mentioned mm. there. I suppose the one thing we must remember in all of this discussion is, you know, we're not a charity, we're not a company. Uh, at the end of the day, we're church. And it's, I suppose what we have to remember when we're talking about anything to do with the pastoral units, it's how we as a community can come together as a praying community, as a faith community. I suppose for you, what do you think is one of the key, or a couple of the key things that people should remember uh, in relation to how this is going to work out in the next while? Well, the thing, key things we have to remember, I think, is is what Pope Francis reminds us of, that the, the purpose of the church, above all, is the encounter with Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. That must always be central. And that the person of Jesus Christ is never a static encounter. It sends us out, mm. goes to go outside ourselves in mission. So I think going forward, we will have to deepen our faith on the one hand. At the same time, we'll have to cooperate more with others that perhaps before we didn't cooperate with, neighboring parishes, whatever. Mm-hmm. Of course, not that we didn't we ignore them, but to actually work with them mm. and, and to do so in a spirit of communion. And there, I think we will have to find moments, occasions to have sharing of faith. It's not enough simply to be people of faith. We need, in our time, to be able to share it. Mm. You spoke about the fact that, you know, in, in when it comes to implementing this and communities coming together, some of it will have to be decided by the teams on the ground. Now, can I put it to you, Bishop, that maybe we m- might need a little more direction from the centre in this regard? So, for example, a couple of years ago, uh, many parishes in the diocese, we went through what we call the sit, kneel, stand routine. You know, everyone got used to the new gestures at Mass. 
during the liturgy, during the liturgy of the Eucharist, during the liturgy of Mass. But at the same time, we still have parishes that are not doing that. So it's very confusing for people when there's no consistency. When you go, you know, if you're visiting a parish and there's no consistency. Like I myself, the example, the best example I can give of that is actually uh, St. Teresa's Church in Clarendon Street in Dublin. It's the church that's just off of Grafton Street. And if you go to Mass there, it's actually, it gets almost comical because people have no idea because you have people from all over the country that go to that particular Mass. And it distracts from the celebration of the Eucharist. Given that there's going to be quite a degree of local autonomy or subsidiarity, if you like, but at the same time, do we also need to kind of set some basic ground rules, if you like? Yeah, well, you know, we have discussed this with some of the with the priests and with the parish councils that I've met, the need for guidelines around different elements of these pastoral units. That's, I think that's accepted by everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Okay. And when do we think we might have those? Yeah, well, the next months. I mean, I think equally we have to allow space and creativity for people. But mm-hmm. certainly I accept also there is a need for clarity. So they will have to start. We have to work on them now. We have started working on them. Please God, in January we might have some of them ready. Mm-hmm. In the pastoral letter that you sent out, uh, you spoke about the challenges that Catholics in Ireland have had over the last 12 months. In particular, of course, we're thinking of the uh, the repeal of the 8th. And I think it's fair to say, and obviously there are ongoing scandals internationally in the church, particularly in the United States at the moment. And I think it's fair to say that for a lot of practicing Catholics in the diocese, as they come towards the end of 2018, it's been a very bruising year, you know, in terms of understanding our place in Irish society and uh, kind of the way in that we see society going around us. And, you know, many people, particularly with the scandals, might be holding on to their relationship both with their institutional church, but also their faith with their fingertips. What would you say to people that would be listening this morning and would be saying, yeah, that's where I'm at this minute in time? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge it because mm. it's very real and a lot of people have expressed that to me. And there are people who are very, very rattled and I, I appreciate that completely. Which of us cannot say we were very upset and, and more than, than upset by a lot of uh, the developments that went on this year from mm. the repeal of the, the 8th to the Cardinal McCarrick scandal in the United States and others. And then I suppose the pre-papal visit, we had a huge amount of negativity about the church. So it has been difficult. Mm. It has been very difficult. Nevertheless, there was one of those moments in the Pope's visit that I found personally very moving was the very last event, effectively, was he met the bishops on his way to the airport. And he, I thought, spoke from his heart when he said, look, the, you know, the church has also been through humiliations. Mm. He said, let's remember we are people who will follow the humiliated one. In other words, Christ was humiliated. Mm. And he was. He was humiliated. It's not easy to be, humiliate, be humiliated. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're people of faith that through that came the resurrection, through that came a third day, and through that came a new beginning. Mm. So perhaps all that's going on at the moment, which for us might be a trial, we're hanging on by our fingertips. But if we really remain faithful and constant, he will be able to work, and we obviously offer him our suffering, he will be able to offer and through us work to bring about something new in the mm. church and that's what's important I suppose one of the things we need to be careful of uh, as, a, as a praying community as a faith community in Ireland is there will be a tendency I suppose to circle the wagons and kind of you know to draw back a small bit to recover and that's, that's to allow healing as you said from the bruising that people will have uh, encountered throughout the year but I suppose the, remi- the thing we have to remind ourselves of course is that we are called to go out mm. 
Very much so. And that is true. I mean, it's true to say that it's only about going outside. Not who am I, but who am I for? Mm. It's by, you know, as Christians, we can never give up the mission that we have. Our mission is always to love, to bring, to build peace, to build up the human family. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many contradictory things happen, we still have to pick ourselves up and go out and do that. Okay. Bishop Brennan, listen, thank you very much for that. And one final question for you, and I'm just, just, I just, I just, I just got to throw this at you and see. Did you see this week's Irish Catholic, by any chance? No. no. Okay. You may not be aware there was an analysis done for the uh, successor to Dermot Martin and your own name was mentioned as number two in the listing. What's your reaction to that? <laughs> Look, uh, I'm here in Limerick. I will be. I'm destined to be here in Limerick for another 17 years, I think. Right. So that's my perspective on it at the moment. So that's, uh, As they'd say in, down in West Cork, you are going to be buried with our people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Bishop Brendan, very much for coming into the programme on this Sunday morning. So again, uh, thanks to Bishop Brendan for sharing his time with us to speak with us this morning. And now we'll go for a second piece of music, and this one is entitled The Hills of the Earth Rejoice by Christ Church Cathedral in St. Lawrence. So let's hear this. <laughs> Sacred Space. And welcome back, listeners, to Sacred Space. My name is Lorraine Buckley, joined in studio this morning by John and Anne Keeley and by Shane Ambrose. And during this part of the programme, we like to read and reflect on our gospel for the Sunday. And Anne, <coughs> I'm going to invite you again to lead us yep. in our prayer before reading and reflecting on sacred scripture. Lord, we thank you for pushing us in the presence of your word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this word reverently, humbly, and attentively. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us, so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity our lives may be transformed by it. 
Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed, nor our minds wander. May we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this water in union with Mary, used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Shane, would you like to read the Gospel for this Sunday, please? When all the people asked John, what must we do? He answered, if anyone has two tunics, he must share with the man who has none, and the one with something to eat must do the same. There were tax collectors too who came for baptism, and these said to him, Master, what must we do? He said to them, Exact no more than your race. Some soldiers asked him in their turn, What must we do? He said to them, No intimidation, no extortion, be content with your pay. A feeling of expectancy had grown among the people, who were beginning to think that John might be the Christ. So John declared before them all, I baptize you with water. But someone is coming, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to undo the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. As well as this, there were many other things he said to exhort the people and to announce the good news to them. Thank you very much, Shane. John, do you have a thought on this morning's Gospel? Just a quick one now. There. Uh, I know we don't have too much time left. Um, again, just to remind people again, Lecture Divina in Newcastle West is a great resort. Uh, resort each Monday night, 10 past 8 to 10 past 9. I happen to be there myself now this week. And just, if, just a thought that uh, I just took away from it. Father Frank just reminded us there that John the Baptist asked uh, both the soldiers and the tax collectors um, or they asked actually John, what must we be? What must we do? You know, and John of course told them, "Well, listen, you can't exhort money out of people, and uh, you can't exact more money out of uh, the ratepayers than what you should." And it's just a thought that came to me there. And Father Frank actually asked us all to maybe to take away with us this week. If we were asked, or if we went up and asked John, what must we do? What do you think John the Baptist would say to us? What what is preventing us? from allowing Jesus to meet us uh, this Christmas? Is there something in the way preventing me from allowing him to come to touch me? And just one last little point there. Um, that Father Frank just reminded us there again on Monday night that God comes to meet us even in the mess of our lives. He He's not waiting for us to become worthy or perfect people and so on and so forth because that'll never happen. But maybe this Christmas, let's allow Jesus to come and meet us where we are. Let's not just try to be perfect and clean up the bits and pieces first. We'll, we'll do that as best we can, but let's not deny Jesus the opportunity of coming to meet us just because we think we're not good enough. And Shane, do you have a quick thought? Um, I suppose this is the second week we have uh, the gospel recounting to us about John the, the John the Baptist, John the Herald, John the did you say the patron saint of spiritual joy? The patron saint of spiritual joy. Yeah, which is an unusual one if you think about it, because of course normally when we think of John, we think of the wild man of the desert, and proclaiming repentance and encouraging people to turn back to God. And I suppose, of course, that is the reminder to us in this uh, Sunday's Gospel how to do that. 
And, you know, people were asking him that, what must we do? And I suppose if we were to ask that question uh, this Sunday to add John the Baptist, because I suppose the question is, John brings um, the wilderness to the people. And I suppose the wilderness has a particular resonance in the history of the Israelis, Israelites, I beg your pardon, in the history of the Israelites, because, of course, it was out of the desert that they were brought to the promised land. And, when, and the, the prophets have come from the wilderness to them. And it's, of course, it is um, out of the ordinary, take us out of our comfort zone, and, of course, into the silence of the wilderness to hear the voice of God. So I suppose I suppose the question for us this Sunday is, who is our John the Baptist? Who is the person that kind of is a bit direct talking, shoots from the hip, doesn't really hold back? And maybe we need to listen a small bit to what they're saying to us this Sunday. Thank you very much, Shane and John and Anne. And of course, a very special thank you again for Bishop Brendan Leahy for taking so much time out of his very busy schedule, especially at this time of the year, to share his thoughts with us on the diocese and on um, his reflection. So that about brings us to the end of the programme this morning. Thanks again for joining us. So now we go for our final bit of music this morning. And this one, a nice bit of music. It's uh, it's entitled Advent Music, and it's by the Dominican Sisters of Springfield in Maryland. Instrumental piece of music. Maybe help us to collect our thoughts after listening to the gospel this morning and the reflection. So next week, God bless you all now. Bye.
Sacred Space.